Here's the good news. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is strictly fictitious. The bad news is that the true crime events committed by the real-life murderer Ed Gain that transpired in Wisconsin are actually true. Charming, I'm sure. However, if you have already seen the film The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, then you already know what the movie Leatherface is all about. Welcome to episode one of South Jersey Horror, you magnificent and classy sons of bitches. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the prequel movie Leatherface, which was released in 2017, and how much I thoroughly enjoyed this blood-curling movie to the very end. But first, I would like to talk about the, how the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and how it all started with a psychopathic maniac with the supposedly terrorized a small part of Texas how it all led up to Ed Gain and being the butcher of Plainfield. We all know this already. And he was notorious for exhuming corpses from graveyards and making mementos with their bones and skin, which clearly served as an inspiration for the scene, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when one of the characters stumbles into a room full of furniture made of dead people and is impaled by a meat hook. And that's what you get for being nosy. Just say, you can impale by a meat hook. Now, Notwithstanding being heavily touted as inspired by a true story, both Toe Hooper's original 1974 film and the 2003 Marcus Nispel remake are only lightly based on the real-life murderer Ed Gain. And he was suspected to have taken several victims between 1954 and 1957. Perhaps the most recognizable similarity is the film's house, whose gruesome content was similar to that found at Ed Gain's home in 1957. Now, to talk about Ed Gain and where he grew up and what fucking happened to this guy, I don't know. It's just something twitched, right? I guess a circuit went loose or something. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> Edward Theodore Gain was born on August 27, 1906 in La Crosse, Wisconsin. He was the son of Augusta and George Gain. Augusta was a deeply spiritual woman who preached the Bible to Eddie and his brother Henry on a daily basis. She warned them about the dangers of unattached women in an effort to keep them from being cast down to hell. She was strict, she was hard, and she never wavered from her own beliefs, which she embedded into the family. Eddie's father, George, was an alcoholic, and Augusta viewed him as being of no value. She began a grocery business in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and when she had saved enough money, she moved to the family away from the center of the city in the farm of Plainfield, Wisconsin. Yeehaw! Sorry. In Cheesehead country, I guess. I don't know. Eddie grew up shy and was ignored by the other kids at school who saw him as a quiet and feminine person. If he did try to make friends, his mother scolded him. As a result, Eddie turned inward and began to reside in his own corners of his mind. And I guess that's where the circuit went short. He worshipped his mother and grew upset when his brother Henry criticized her. And on May 16, 1944, while fighting a brush fire near the farm, Eddie and Henry split up and went into different directions. After the fire had been extinguished, Eddie grew concerned because his brother had not returned. When police arrived, Eddie led them directly to his missing brother, Henry, and who was lying dead in an area untouched by the fire with bruises on his head. The shy and seemingly harmless Eddie was quickly dismissed as a suspect, and the coroner listed asphyxiation as the cause of death. Yeah, because hitting him in the, in the head with rocks causes asphyxiation. 
where's the science in that one? Anyway, moving on. Obsessively devoted to his mother, Gain never left home or dated women, though after she died in late 1945, he became increasingly deranged. I guess this is where, this is where the circuit went just a little bit shorter. He left her room neat and untouched while the rest of the home fell into a squalor, and he developed an interest in anatomy books. Gain managed to support himself as a handyman and, despite his odd behavior as a babysitter, Meanwhile, a few residents from the general area had mysteriously disappeared over the years. Hmm. So among them was Mary Hogan, who ran a tavern in a nearby pine grove that Gain regularly frequented. On November 16, 1957, Bernice Warden was reported missing from her hardware store in Plainfield. And with the cash register also gone and a trail of blood leading out the back. Her son Frank, a deputy sheriff, was suspicious of Gain, and the cloister man was soon apprehended at a neighbor's house. The authorities sent to Gain's home that night were greeted by the gruesome sight of Warden's headless, gutted body hanging from the ceiling. Further investigation yielded more shocking discoveries, including organs in jars and skulls used as soup bowls. Hey, if you're not using your enemy's skull to drink blood out of, then you're doing it wrong. Just saying, it's what the Vikings did, right? Under questioning, Gain confessed to killing Warden and Hogan three years earlier. Furthermore, he confessed to digging up numerous corpses for cutting off body parts, practicing necrophilia, and fashioning masks and suits of skin to wear around the home. You sick fuck. Anyway, with that sort of evidence, authorities attempted to connect him to other murderers and the disappearances of recent years, but were unable to draw any definitive conclusions. I guess you guys, your detective work sucks. I don't know. Gaines' lawyer, William Belter, entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, and in January 1958, Gaines was found unfit to stand trial. He was committed to Central State Hospital, where he variously worked as a mason, a carpenter's assistant, and a medical center aide. So you're going to put a psychopath in a ward to be a mason, a carpenter's assistant, and a medical center aide, where he gets to play with, I don't know, sharp tools and knives and shit. Not really a good idea there, Warden. Anyway, moving on to trial and death, in early 1968, Gain was determined fit to finally stand trial. That November, he was found guilty of the murder of Warden. However, comma, he was also found insane at the time of the murder, and such was recommitted to Central State Hospital. Save for his attempt to petition for a release in 1974, which was rejected, thank God, the mild-mannered Gain made virtually no news while institutionalized. I guess he wasn't popular enough. I don't know. Later that decade, his health failing, he was transferred to the Minnesota Mental Health Institute, where he died of cancer and respiratory illness on July 26, 1984. Two questions that probably crossed people's minds. Did the real Ed Gain ever wear a human's face as a mask like Leatherface did in the film? Ed Gain did wear a human scalp. He did wear a human's face. He did this, however, to help quell his desire to be a woman, not because of a skin disease as with Leatherface in the film. Also included in his uniform, Ed Gain wore a vest of skin complete with breast and female genitalia strapped above his own. That's disgusting, bro. Did the real Ed Gain use a chainsaw to kill his victims? No. Both of Ed Gain's identified victims, Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden, were shot with a pistol. In November 5th, oh, I'm sorry, in November 1957, police found Bernice Warden hanging from the rafters in a shed behind Gaines' house. Her body had been gutted like that of a deer, 
and the head had been removed. Ed Gain was also the suspect and several other missing persons. The element of the chainsaw that was added for the film's story was once again emphasizes the loose connection of the film to Gain. Alright, I guess you've all heard enough about Ed Gain and what he did back in the 50s. So now we are going to move on to the movie review of Leatherface and how it all began. Considering the game-changing stature of Toe Hoover's 1974 original in the Chronicles of Horror Cinema, it is odd that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre has had such a peculiar irregular life in franchise terms. Unusual still then that after so many reinventions of this particular wheel to varying artistic and box office rewards that Leatherface should quietly premiere on DirecTV. And then maybe later dumped in theaters. Who knows? So I didn't know back in the day. It was I didn't know when straight to DirecTV. Shit. Whatever. Assholes. Anyway, written by Seth M. Sherwood and directed by the French duo Julian Mori and Alexander Bastillo, this origin story is somewhat mixed, is a mixed bag, but it's also an earnest and well-crafted attempt at course correction, straying from stock slasher recyclage to provide a different story that actually connects a few dots in a very tangled cinematic chainsaw and this universe to date. So, particularly given an angry popular rejection, just handed genre rule breaker mother, you think this respectable addition to an uneven but brand horror pick lineage would warrant better treatment. Say that five times fast, I dare you. If you've seen any of the previous incarnations of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or any post-1974 horror film set in the Texas rural area, rural, then you know the world of Leatherface, there's a dysfunctional family led by ruthless matriarch Verna Sawyer, played by Lily Taylor, and they bond by killing strangers. Hey, a family that slays together stays together, right? The family begins at a birthday party of a poor preteen Jed, played by Boris Kabachev. Kabachev? I don't know, I'm sorry if I butchered the name Boris. Now tasked with killing a random passerby. Jed doesn't kill his gift, using the chainsaw that's put in front of him, but he also doesn't completely abstain from murder. Admittedly, it doesn't start out too promisingly with a nasty 1955 rural Texas juvenile birthday party scene in which the game, you know, pin the tail on the donkey has apparently been replaced by torture of the suspected pig thief. You stole our pigs! I'm going to cut your nuts off with a chainsaw! Wow, if that was the punishment back in the 50s in Texas, or whenever the hell this shit happened, fuck you, I'm not stealing any pigs. That puts at odds with Verna and Texas Ranger Hal Hartman, played by Stephen Dorff. Albeit for very different reasons, Verna wants her boy to kill, and Hartman would rather he didn't. I think Hartman has a point. Fast forward a couple years, by maybe 10 years, when Jed is forced to be separated from his mom and placed in a mental hospital. Now, the children at this hospital are renamed for their own safety, but it seems likely that Jed has grown up to be become Bud. That was my assumption at first played by Sam Coleman, since he fits the psychological profile of a young serial killer. Let's name him here, shall we? The guy's overweight, he's awkward, he's wearing fucked up coveralls, barely speaks, and he's terrified of women. Classical signs of a serial killer, right? I would think so. Now, it's no surprise when Bud becomes, after a short period of heavy foregrounding, a supporting character in what appeared to start out as his own story. 
After all, what kind of hillbilly killer gets to be the star of his own film? Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. Squeal like a pig boy. Anyway. A hospital is a gothic purgatory where insubordinate inmates suffer a sadistic regime of electroconclusive therapy. When a bloody riot breaks out, Lizzie, the nurse, is taken hostage and forced to go on the run with a gang Bud tags along with during a murderous hospital escape enacted by horny killers Clarice. Clarice. Played by Jessica Madsen and Ike. Hey, Ike. Played by James Blore. And Braddy Team Jackson, played by Sam Strike. Jackson could take or leave all the killing stuff, but Ike and Clarice get off on it. Their designated hostage, empathetic nurse Lizzie, played by Vanessa Gross, develops an implausible tentative attraction to Jackson. All the while, Verna and Hal are hot on the trail's kid. Uh, I'm sorry, hot on the kid's trail. My bad. There are some fairly overt movie homages here, from Badlands to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Natural Born Killers. The first stop was a roadside barbecue where the later duo leave a few other patrons alive. That massacre naturally attracts the still furiously vengeful Hartman, while also putting Mama Vernon on the scent of her liberated kin. Now, that scene where the dude shoots the waitress in the face with a shotgun, that was awesome. That was like, woo, all right, good shit. Now, sorry I diverted. <laughs> Who's the craziest here, the sheriff or the kids, right? So, it's a contest in which very little merriment will be had. The future Leatherface is actually a victim of Sherwood's scenario, which does the best it can to pull together various characters and reference points for a mismatched prior chainsaw entries into a cognitive prequel. Now, there's plenty of graphic violence here, but Leatherface is a plot-driven rather than merely kill-driven. If anything, a handsomely designed and shot feature is simply too compact to carry the full weight of exploitation exclaimed for. It plays less as a horror movie than a down and dirty action flick, but that too is a useful redirection. Nothing is ever going to fully recapture the berserker mood that made Hooper's original so terrifying, despite its deceptive lack of actual on-screen gore. Leatherface deserves credit for doing something other than the rote franchise reboots of recent years which admittedly managed to recapture a mainstream audience after the weirder flop follow-ups. Excessively like Texas Chainsaw 2. I mean, that was a big-ass flop, you ask me. I mean, you put Dennis Hopper in there. Um, then you put Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. Good actors, but not good for Texas Chainsaw. Performances are rock solid in the movie, though it's initially shuddering to see Taylor in this kind of film. No matter that she's already done less hard-edged horror like The Conjuring, The Haunting, and The Addiction. She fully commits to the role despite her flat dialogue and certainly would have picked a worse movie to gore out in. But thanks to the uneven screenplay, her part turns out the worst of it. Dorf loses no cred whatsoever with an enthusiastic turn in a one-dimensional villain role, while the younger actors throw themselves into the task with aplomb. Leatherface was shot in Bulgaria, though the ambience passes for Texas. At least the Texas of horror movies well enough. Closing thoughts. Yay! So, I would definitely consider this film a landmark of hillbilly horror. Although with the previous installments as so-called remakes, those before erased the quality from the original. Leatherface pitches itself as a recognized prequel to the original. 
It is certainly a superior film to its most recent franchise predecessor, the Texas Chainsaw 3D, which came out in 2013, which earned damning reviews but still turned a healthy profit somehow. I don't know, but it did. It's highly weird for you, I guess. This movie in particular unquestionably serves up the blood and guts that every horror fan like me loves to see on the cinematic screen. As a well-made-up pulp of hillbilly horror and torture, Leatherface is not an enthusiastically original reboot. It simply brings a breath of refreshingly foul air to a waning franchise. Admirably, it also manages to remain gripping while avoiding the self-referential irony and sexualized torture porn that has dominated much of horror over the last two decades. The climatic chainsaw wielding bloodbath will surprise nobody, but it has a satisfying splatterpunk energy that Tobe Hooper himself would surely have relished. As for the story itself, I thought it was outstanding. I was fascinated by the psychology behind Jackson's transformation into Leatherface. As far as origin stories go, I thought the story was well-rounded and it did a job of keeping me engaged throughout the entire runtime. Look, okay, Leatherface is not going to win any Oscars, and that's perfectly fine by me. It's not that type of film, but as a slasher flick, it did its job well, and I didn't try to be anything that it wasn't. I was entertained from the moment we first see Jackson as a kid, to Texas Ranger Hal Hartman's disdain towards the Sawyer family, to the eventual climax of Leatherface's appearance. To me, the story was seamless and all-encompassing, which I very much appreciated. As a side note, for those of you who absolutely hate this film, I understand that I am not the biggest fan of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I appreciate the lineage that, that the film has had, as well as how iconic Leatherface is, but as far as iconic horror slashers go, Leatherface is not my top choice. With that being said, the fact that I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. In regards to the gore, those of you who love a good gore fest are going to be very happy with the outcome. There were definite moments where I found myself cringing in disgust, but not once did I close my eyes or look away. As the saying goes, the Saw is family, and in this film it's used with such unforgiving brutality and carnage that it's kind of shocking. There's one death scene in particular that comes to mind, and though part of me felt like this character deserved it, it was still pretty difficult to watch. I'm not going to spoil it for you if you haven't seen the movie yet. You're just going to have to sit your butt down and watch the movie. Overall, Leatherface is definitely one of those more carnage films I've seen this year. Though not perfect, the film does give us a well-told story of the beginnings of Leatherface, while also leaving the conclusion open for additional sequels. God, I hope they do make a sequel. That'd be awesome. If you are someone that has excuse me, admittedly, if you are someone that is adamantly against origin stories, then maybe you should skip this film. However, if you are looking for a ruthless splatterfest with merciless kills, quality acting, and above-par storytelling, then you should definitely check out Leatherface. From escaping a mental institute to ending up cutting off a woman's head with a chainsaw, Jed sure as hell makes his mama proud. And on a personal note, I would like to thank all my listeners, both in the United States and overseas. Without you, my podcast would not be successful. And soon enough, I will be having stickers ordered so I can dispense them out to all the listeners who are listening to this podcast today. I will make an announcement later on when the stickers arrive. And I will be giving them up for free. 
So let me know by sending me a message or leaving a comment somewhere on Anchor, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I'm still figuring this thing out. However, I do have an email address where you can send me an email requesting a sticker. Um, it's the underscore horror underscore hound at yahoo.com. I will put it in the box description. That way um, you can just copy and paste it in your email browser and be so much easier that way. So thank you so much. Please continue to subscribe and listen to South Jersey Horror. And I hope you all like the transition as much as I do on Anchor FM, Breaker Audio, CastBox, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Spotify.